You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I wrote a letter to the English newspaper here in Israel called the Jerusalem Post. I don't know if they're going to publish it or not, but I want to share with the listeners what I wrote in that letter because I think I have something to say. The letter goes like this. The events of 7 October mark a sea change in world history. It is on a par with the Chamberlain-Hitler Agreement of 1938 and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Nothing will ever be the same, not for the world, and particularly not for Jewish people and for Israel. There are a number of features of this new situation that have come into focus, some of which were dominant but have now become manifest, and while others are entirely new. By the way, I correct what I just said. Not that some were dominant, some were, some were dormant, but now they've come and manifest what others entirely know. The world today is primarily divided into two opposing camps. One is the Judeo-Christian society of the West, which is represented primarily by the United States and Israel. Western Europe, once the prime representative of this camp, has been weakened by a huge influx of Muslims over the last 50 years. The opposing camp is composed of two parts. One is the atheistic part, represented by Russia and China, and the other is the radical Muslim part, represented by Iran. Although Russia still has a large Christian population, and China may have a large Buddhist population, these nations are now in the hands of atheists and non-believers. Iran, which was once a moderate Islamic state, is now in the hands of radical Islam. They took over about 40 years ago. The only thing these two camps have in common is their active and militant opposition to Western society, represented in the main by the United States and Israel. The future of the world will be determined by the struggle between these camps. The United States is the primary leader of the Judeo-Christian camp, and Israel is in the front line of its defense. That is why it is imperative for the United States to support Israel. This is not a struggle between nations. It is a struggle between societies and civilizations upon which the future of the world depends. The massive and violent demonstrations in support of Palestinian terrorism in American cities 
particularly on the campuses of universities, with the active and passive support of members of faculty and administration, are proof of a theory advanced by an early 20th century Italian anarchist named Antonio Gramsci. He theorized that governments are not overthrown nor societies changed by active revolution, but rather by slow and constant takeover of the educational institutions. This does not bode well for the United States as the leader of Western society, nor for the Jews of the United States, particularly college students, who openly express their fear of physical violence. Incidentally, it should be noted, as pointed out in the uh, an editorial recently in the Jerusalem Post, the leaders of several foundations Foundation foundations, uh, financial foundations have withdrawn their support from academic institutions that tolerate anti-Semitic activity, like Columbia, like Harvard, like Penn. In addition to demonstrations in American cities, there have been massive outpourings of support for Palestinian terrorism in Paris and in Brussels, Belgium. Tolerance of Jews by European society, fostered by guilt feelings after the Holocaust, have diminished over time and now are offset by the massive influx of Muslims, as I noted above. As for Israel, until 7 October, it was deeply divided society with demonstrations for and against the government occurring on a weekly and almost daily basis, with even heroic military veterans taking the radical step of vowing not to serve. As of 7 October, this is past history, and the country is united it has never been since its founding in 1948. A further and positive aspect of this change is the participation of ultra-Orthodox Haredi society as this joint, in this joint effort. Although Haredi society has an outstanding and admirable history of being active in organizations involved in helping society at the civil level, did not consider military service as part of its obligation to society. <clears throat> this has changed overnight, and now there is a now a high rate of Haredi mobilization. This means that Haredi were not only participating physically in the defense of the country, but it will eliminate the tensions being Haredi between Haredi and nine non-Haredi society that has been growing because of their non-participation. This is a further step in the strengthening of Israeli society. And finally, since 7 October, it has been obvious that there must be a change in the electoral system. The government, 
we should have predicted and prevented this tragedy is with a few rare exceptions composed of faceless petty, faceless petty politicians who are beholden only to the party leadership to have their names placed on a list for elections. The people deserve better. The country should be divided into local electoral districts so that those who are elected should know should be known and be answerable to those who elected them. This is how real democracies work, and this could be one of the positive outcomes of this tragedy. <coughs> now, as I said previously, I wrote this uh, uh, in a letter to the Jerusalem Post, which, the, which is the primarily uh, English language uh, newspaper. It's read by uh, not only Israelis, but it's read also by uh, uh, people from uh, foreign countries and so forth. So I sent this in, and hopefully it will uh, get published. But in the meantime, I wanted the listeners to share with me the thoughts that I had about the result, what's resulted from the attack on Israel on August 6th. Now I want to say a couple of other things about the situation here. The relationship of other countries to what's happening right now here in Israel. Any reticence to condemn Hamas amounts to, co- to collusion against Israel. Hesitancy to express explicit support for Israel at this time, which, or, or, which also means backing Israel in the many months ahead of fighting to crush Hamas, is tantamount to siding with the enemy. This has become obvious uh, in the American Congress, even though both the Republican and uh, Democratic parties are overwhelmingly supportive of Israel, there's this small group of um, Democrats who are anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, and in a sense, they're also anti-American. The uh, There's always sympathy for victims of conflict, but uh, that, that, that is a moral failure and you can't talk about that. During the Second World War, people in the United States and Britain had no sympathy for the people living in Germany and uh, Japan. It was a war. There's no time for the uh, for sympathy. Truth of the matter is, the Palestinians are, after all, victims of their own horrible leadership, but they chose it. This is a time for friends of Israel around the world to speak up loudly in support of Israel. Now, there's a call also heard around the world for a ceasefire. It makes no sense. A ceasefire now would be a victory for the Islamic attackers and a defeat for Israel. The, uh, the call for a, an immediate ceasefire is in fact meant to neutralize Israel and weakened against the next attacks that will come from Hamas, Hezbollah, and all these other proxies of the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
Now it's interesting that people, some people say that Hamas does not represent Palestinians in Gaza. Even Joe Biden has some, said this. But the truth of the matter is they voted in Hamas by over 70%. And they, they would, these people uh, in, who control Gaza, Hamas, uh, they were elected there and have been able to draft tens of thousands of Gazans into its military. Gaza's civilian population abetted Hamas in plotting against Israel, and they, thousands of ordinary Palestinians carried out the worst atrocities on October 7th massacre. Tens of thousands have participated in riots on border fences going back years. The, um, there are no uninvolved. Uninvolved mothers play, are proud to send their children and battle them to turn them into martyrs, what they call shahids. And so-called uninvolved teachers teach the children of Gaza that it's a religious obligation to kill Jews. These uninvolved have helped Hamas to hide its rocket launchers and other weapons. That does not mean, of course, that Israel should target every Palestinian household in Gaza, not at all. It does, it does mean, however, that these sentiments meant, meant to, uh, to make a lot of nasty Palestinians look good simply isn't true. Now, there's no doubt that Hamas is guilty of war crimes. They must be held accountable for war crimes. Its barbaric attack on Israeli towns is a war crime. Its use of civilians in Gaza as human shields uh, is a war crime. And its efforts uh, to uh, stop the uh, evacuation of those trying to get out of Gaza to go to Egypt is a war crime. So they are guilty of war crimes on several levels. So uh, you can add several additional war-related offenses like inflating and manipulating casualty counts, stealing relief supplies, and so forth. <clears throat> now, there are those who are suggesting to bring the Palestinian Authority back as the ruler of Gaza. They were kicked out of there in 2005 by... Uh, by Hamas, and they, they are the so-called rulers in the West Bank. No, however, the Palestinian Authority is weak, corrupt, and is not legitimate among the Palestinians themselves. So, and the truth of the matter is that the people of the Palestinian Authority are also no less hostile to Israel than the Hamas is. So, don't delude yourself into thinking the Palestinian Authority is this authority is the solution. There is no two-state solution anymore. Now, on top of all this, there is Iran. Washington is reluctant to call out Iran for what is being supportive of what's happening. President Obama had a, a delusion for uh, about Iran. And that delusion runs in the Biden administration also. 
the few in the American administration today understand the absolute need to cut Iran's regional down heft down to size. Uh, also, there's another country involved, Qatar. It's a small, rich emirate in the Gulf, and it has a history of playing both sides in conflicts and getting away with it. Uh, but that, they should be watched carefully. There should be an American ultimatum to Qatar, which are given two hours warning to expel Hamas leadership, which is living in Qatar, and they also have troops from the U.S. air base in Qatar. So the, the Qatar is playing both sides of the both sides of the of the situation. Now, uh, the um, let's say a word about humanitarian refuge and relief. Re- relief for Gaza and Palestinians is a problem of Israel, not the world. Uh, Egypt, for example, has sealed its border with with Gaza, to hundreds of thousands of civilians seeking to get out because the Egyptian president doesn't want to hurt the cause of Palestinian statehood. In other words, he's denying Palestinian asylum seekers for geopolitical means. So, and another subject is Israel cannot allow Hamas to continue getting supplies of fuel and electricity during the war. A blockade of Gaza is needed and justified. Limiting the flow of funds and electricity into Gaza is meant to impair the enemy's military capabilities. This is legal warfare. This is not collective punishment of the civilian population. The United States and Britain didn't allow aid to go to the civilian population of Germany during the war, and rightfully so. So, by the way, the non-supply of fuel and electricity to the enemy is not only ethical, it's justified under international law. The, uh, by the way, international law requires Israel uh, to allow the passage of food medicine to civilians by third parties if such goods can be reliably delivered. Uh, but if Hamas is taking the, the, the stuff for themselves, Israel has no need to deliver it. Now, the final question is, is who will rule Gaza once Hamas is annihilated? What's the end game? Nobody knows. This is going to be a long war. Who knows how the war will develop, where it will lead? And the matter is the world's problem, not just Israel's because resolution is tied to broader regional battles. So Israel does not have to answer what's going to happen when it's over. Our main focus has to be on victory and destruction of Hamas. So we have a victory strategy. We have to stick to it. That's all Israel has to be involved in right now. What comes afterward can wait until afterward. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The news is happening fast and furious this week. Uh, I uh, listened to the news from the United States, 
And uh, I'm uh, recording this part of the program on Tuesday afternoon, and uh, I see that there are people uh, disturbing hearings in Congress in the United States, <clears throat> people shouting in favor of the terrorists, and they're being taken out by the Capitol Police. Uh, this is the kind of thing you never heard about before. And so that's one thing that's happening there. At the same time this week, there were huge demonstrations uh, in New York and uh, about 10 or 12 different American cities, tens of thousands of people supporting um, the uh, terrorists in the big cities, particularly on the East Coast of the United States. And uh, support of uh, terrorists in the, by huge mobs in various uh universities in the United States, it's gotten so bad that uh, Jewish students are actually fearful for their lives. There's some, nothing like this happened uh, since the Nazi Germany, actually. So the United States is in deep trouble. <clears throat> it's interesting for, it's interesting, um, before there was precise instrumentation, to measure toxic fumes in coal mines, canaries would be used because they were more sensitive to toxic fumes from uh, uh, that would happen in the that occur in the coal mines than human beings were sensitive to. So what would happen was <coughs> the coal miners, uh, because they didn't have instrumentation, they would carry. Uh, Canaries at the Minton coal mine, and when the canaries got canaries got sick, they, uh, the manor, the uh, miners knew that they had to get out. Now, the truth of the matter is, and I, I, I wrote about this maybe 20 years ago, but it's even more true today, especially when you look at what's happening in the major cities and the campuses in the United States. The canary in the coal mine of Western society is the Jew. When the Jew is endangered, so is the entire society. Mass anti-Jewish riots disguised actually as anti-Israel, but they're anti-Jewish. Uh, they're often accompanied by physical violence and they've occurred in a number of major American and European cities and on university campuses. In New York, home of the largest Jewish population outside of Israel, Grand Central was closed by thousands who poured out of this train station or the busy 42nd Street to protest and in some cases to attack Jews. Hundreds were arrested by the police. Tens of thousands of pro-Palestinian and anti-Jewish marchers crossed the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and uh, these pro-Palestinian mobs were rioting in Brooklyn. Interestingly, New York City has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. Anyhow, 
hundreds of people were arrested by the police. And Jewish students at prestigious colleges like Penn, which is my alma mater, Harvard, New York University, and numerous, numerous other uh, institutes of higher learning have had to seek police protection from pro-Palestinian rioters. As a matter of fact, a number of Jewish benefactors of these institutions had ended their support and their funding because the school administrations have done nothing to stop the violence. The governor of New York uh, went to Cornell University to speak about the anti-Semitism taking place there. Now, the truth of the matter is, you really think about this, you don't have to be a, a big uh, expert in history. These things are inconceivable only a few years ago. In particular, the anti-Israel activity on campuses, some supported by a not inconsiderable number of faculty members, has long-term implications. I think that what's happening on the campuses is worse than what's happening on the streets. And I'll tell you why. There was an early 19th century Italian anarchist by the name of Antonia Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I. I may have mentioned this uh, previous to my program, but it's important. Uh, he theorized that a society is not overthrown by revolution, but rather by slow but constant takeover of the educational system. America is the primary defender of Western society. It's been that way since World War II. The Western world, which is Judeo-Christian society, is defended primarily in the front, in the uh, in the front lines is, is Israel, and of course the United States. And the United States has moved major naval uh, forces uh, near into the Middle East. And as I said, the America, which is the primary defender of Western society since World War II, is in trouble. And the attacks on the Jews in America is a sign that the danger is imminent. And so attacks upon Jews in the United States is a very, very bad thing for the Western world. And I said something before, but I want to repeat it because I think it's really important. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, when I uh, do this program, I try to do uh, uh, one part each day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so when I send in my program on Thursday, I've done all four parts. Uh, but things are happening in a really fast and furious. 
And I don't recall if I said it before. If I did, I apologize for repeating myself. But I want to emphasize something. That um, what happened on the 7th of October here in Israel marks a sea change in world history. It is on a par with the Chamberlain-Hitler Agreement of 1938 and a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 because nothing will ever be the same, not for the world and particularly not for the Jewish people everywhere and not for Israel. It's interesting, by the way, how Israel, up until the, that date, 7th of October, Israel uh, here, there was, was tremendous political struggle here in Israel. Uh, there were army officers who were opposed to the changes that the government is trying to make, and they said they would not serve in for, in, for uh in the service, if they were called up for reserve duty, they wouldn't serve. All that has changed as of the 7th of October. The uh, response to the situation has been more than 100%. The, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the not only are uh, reservists coming in who aren't even called, but people are volunteering, and uh, they don't even have enough food because the place is being overwhelmed with personnel. So people all over Israel are raising food, and they're helping other supplies uh, like uh, jackets, um, shoes even, and uh, oddly enough, you know, there is a religious garment called the Arba Kanfot, it's something that the men wear under their clothing as a rule that has fringes. Uh, it's a religious garment. Uh, and the, it's known, a lot of people know, know it as a talit katan, a small talit. A talit is the big prayer shawl that's worn during services by uh, men. And the, the small uh, talit katan that they wear under their clothing every day and there were volunteers in Israel, women, making these talitot katan for the, for the soldiers because even soldiers who claim they're not religious are wearing them now. This has brought about a super change in Israel. Israel is never going to be the same. No tears about it. But the, there is a tremendous number of features of this new situation, and it's absolutely mind-boggling. Nobody could have predicted this before the 7th of October. And in the, in the in large, in the, on the magna scale, the world today is shown to be primarily divided into two opposing camps. There's no two ways about it. One is the Judeo-Christian society. That's the society of the West. It's represented by the United States and Israel. Western Europe once was the prime representative 
of Judeo-Christian society, but it's been weakened by the large influx of Muslims over the last half century. This influx of Muslims primarily to Europe has weakened Western society, and incidentally, this unlimited, unguarded immigration into the United States through its southern border may cause the same thing to happen in the United States. These things are not unrelated. I saw in the news today that there's hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants have entered the United States and cities like New York, they don't even have room where they can put these people. They're using beds in hotels. And that, that terrible things that are happening with the uh, illicit, illegal immigration to the United States really is not just a question of people coming to the United States. It's a question of the kind of people coming into the Nights. And where do these people come from? Who are these people? What's going to happen to the United States in the course of the next 10 or 20 years with all these illegal immigrants from countries that do not have the values of the United States, which means they do not have Judeo-Christian attitudes. It's going to affect the United States. It's going to affect the free world. And it's a really serious problem. Now, as I said, there are two opposing camps. One is the Judeo-Christian camp. And the, uh, the other is the atheistic part, which is represented in the... There's another part of that camp. It's the radical Muslim part represented by Iran. Although Russia still has a large Christian population and China may have a large Buddhist population, these nations are now in the hands of atheists and non-believers. They're the ones who set the policies. Iran was once a moderate Islamic state. It was an ally of Israel. I had friends here in Israel who worked and did business in Iran. All this changed after the revolution uh, 40-some years ago. Iran is now in the hands of radical Islam. The only thing that these two camps have in common, the atheistic part and the, uh, and the uh, uh, radical Islam part, the only thing they have in common is their active and militant opposition to Western society represented in the main by the United States and Israel. There is no doubt, in my mind at least, and I'm not a big expert, the future of the world will be determined by the struggle between these two camps. I may have mentioned this previously, but I emphasize it even more as I watch the news from the United States today. The United States 
is the leader of the Judeo-Christian camp, and Israel is in the front line of its defense. That is why it is so important for the United States to support Israel. That's why, for example, the Congress, under its new leadership, is pushing for support of Israel. The administration in the United States put in a bill, a huge financial bill, to, for three things. Support Israel, support Ukraine, and protect America's southern border. And the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives, under its new speaker, want to separate these bills and push forward first the support for Israel. The Democrats, by the way, are opposed to this. The Republicans are more realistic. They know that Israel, Israel's fight is the fight of Western civilization. So it's an imperative that the United States support Israel. This is not a struggle between nations. It is a struggle between societies and it is a struggle between civilizations. And the future of the world depends on the this struggle. The massive and often violent demonstrations in support of Palestinian terrorism in American cities, and particularly on the campuses of universities, with the active and passive support of members of faculty and administration, are proof of a theory advanced by a 20th century Italian anarchist who I mentioned before. And I repeat that. Because I don't want to bore the listeners, but this is really important. It is, he theorized that governments are not overthrown nor societies changed by active revolution, but only by constant takeover of the institutions of education. This does not bode well for the United States, as I mentioned before. This doesn't bode well for the United States nor for the Jews of the United States, particularly college students who openly express their fear of physical violence. I've seen them being uh, interviewed. Students in Cornell, for example, were uh, interviewed just today. They're afraid to come out of their dormitories. We're talking about an Ivy League college. Incidentally, um, the, uh, the leaders of several Jewish institute foundations have withdrawn their support, and that makes sense. They, they realize what's happening. <coughs> in addition to these demonstrations in American cities and on American campuses, there have been massive outpourings of support for Palestinian terrorism. Paris, and Brussels, and London. Tolerance of Jews by European society, forced in primarily by guilt feelings after the Holocaust, these feelings of guilt have diminished over time, 
and it's now offset by the massive influx of Muslims. Now, again, I, I hate to repeat myself, but these things are really important. I want to impress upon the listeners. The until seventh October, Israel was a deeply divided society. Primarily, there were demonstrations for and against the government on a weekly and daily basis, um, and uh, heroic military veterans were taking the radical, radical step of vowing not to serve. I live not far from uh, the home of the President of Israel, and not, not far from the Knesset, Israel's parliament, where many times, particularly on Saturday nights, when I couldn't come home and to park my car because the streets were filled with demonstrators against changes in, <coughs> in, in policy of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and I had to prove to the police where I lived before I could come home and park. As of the 7th, 7th October, this is past history. This country is united and has never been since its founding in 1948. Now, and another further and a very positive aspect of this change is the participation of ultra-Orthodox society in this joint effort. Although this society, which are called Haredi in Hebrew, H-A-R-E-D-I, although Haredi society has an outstanding and admirable history of being active in the organizations involved in helping society at the civil and social level, the Haredi society did not consider military service as part of its obligation to society. This has changed overnight, and there is now a large and high rate of Haredi mobilization. This means that Haredi people are not only participating physically in the defense of the country, but will eliminate the tensions between Haredi and non-Haredi society that's been growing because they are non-participation. So this is a further step in the strengthening of Israeli society. And again, I hope I'm not repeating myself, but this is really important. The, and this is something that's uh, perhaps difficult for the uh, listeners uh, outside the country. Uh, another point, there has to be a change in the electoral system here in Israel. The, in Israel, you cannot vote for a local representative, and you have to vote for a party list. And the party list is made up by the leaders of the party. In other words, each party leadership chooses the names and the order of people on the party list. There are 120 seats in the Knesset, so the bigger parties uh, choose the membership uh, for, for they, they choose 120 names in order. The smaller parties know that they're not going to get uh, a large membership in the Knesset, so they choose up to maybe 50 names on their list. 
So when you vote for a party, uh, the list uh, gets its percentage interconnected. For example, if a party got 50% uh, of the vote, 50% of its list goes into Knesset. And you get you get half that list, even though you yourself, the voter, don't even know who's, can't even name who's on that list. So what's happened now is the government, which should have predicted and prevented this tragedy, with few rare exceptions, composed of faceless petty politicians who are beholden only to the party leadership to have their names placed on the list for elections. The people of Israel have shown they deserve better. The country should be divided into local electoral districts those those who are elected should know and be answerable to those who elected them. That is how real democracies work, and this could be one of the positive outcomes of this tragedy. So as I said before, nothing will ever be the same after the 7th of October. It will not be the same in Israel, it will not be the same in the Western world. And things have changed, and we have to be aware of this. Again, I apologize to the listeners if I repeat myself, but I want to emphasize how important this moment is for our future. I'll be back after the break. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I apologize for being a little bit unfocused on the program this week, but things are happening very quickly, and I'm speaking more emotionally than I'm speaking from my notes. And uh, uh, you have to forgive me for that, but uh, that's the way the situation is now. I mentioned before that there are protests against Israel all around the world. I saw, by the way, the, the protests against Israel have uh, uh, primarily in the United States and in Europe, but there actually been protests in, uh, against Israel in Tokyo, of all places. But I just mentioned that as an aside. The, the, uh, when word of the atrocities that uh, Hamas perpetrated against Israel the world became mostly, the rational world became supportive of Israel. And in a sense, the October 7th, 2023, is something like uh, this, as I said before, like December 7th, 1941, in the United States. The Hamas fired thousands of missiles at Israel. Uh, fired all over Israel, not just near near the Gaza border, but the Tel Aviv and Jerusalem as far down as a lot. 
and uh, the terrorists breached the border with uh, uh, driving bulldozers right through the fence that was supposed to protect Israel. So that was the most horrific day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And to put it in another perspective, on a per capita basis, 1,400 people were killed. Israel has a population of less than 10 million. So it's equal to 15 times the number of Americans killed on 9-11. Everyone in Israel knows someone who lost someone. You know, like I was talking to my grandchildren the other day. They're, they're busy in the army, but they're taking time off to go to funerals of friends and heirs. Now, Israel striking back has launched a major ground offensive to remove Hamas's ability to harm us. The, uh, now, there are people saying, calling on Israel to, for restraint because thousands of civilian deaths are taking place in uh, Gaza. That is not going to happen. Israel has been shaken to its core. We have been victims of pogroms, and we have been murdered en masse for simply being Jews. We're less than 80 years after the Holocaust, and what happened on the 7th of October was a pogrom. Hamas is ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban. They're not militant groups. They're not freedom fighters. They are brutal terrorists. The, uh, it's interesting, uh, a, a New York Times commentator named Nicholas Kristof wrote a piece stating, we must not kill Gazan children to, to try to protect Israel's children. That's what this New York Times columnist wrote. Many people think seem to think that because there are more deaths in Gaza than the number of Israeli deaths, the Israeli response has not been what they call proportional. And now they say that Israel's committing genocide. That was some of the signs they carried into uh, into the American Congress uh, this this week. Said Israel's guilty of a genocide. The uh, people saying that the death toll in Gaza is because Israel's exacting revenge or is following uh, an eye for an eye, it's not proportional. These people are all mistaken. The, no doubt there are some Israelis who want revenge. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, natural. But even leftist, peace-loving Israelis believe that Hamas must be stopped. One of the persons who was captured and taken over, they interviewed his family the other day, was a uh, peace activist who lived near the border and he used to take uh, Palestinian children uh, and took care of them. He went to Gaza and brought them out to take care of them in Israel. He was one of the hostages now being held. Our government has an obligation to protect us, and that means removing the ability of these terrorists to do us harm. Now, it'll mean a lengthy and difficult ground operation, which has taken place already, 
and there will be deaths of combatants and civilians, even including children. That's what happens in a war. What this New York Times commentator is wrong is that Israeli is not intending to kill Gazan children to protect Israeli children, unlike Hamas, who intentionally targeted the weakest members of our society. The blame for the deaths of children in Gaza is squarely on the shoulders of Hamas and the terrorists. According to the Red Cross, proportionality means the number of civilian deaths in a particular attack should be proportional to the military value of the target. They come up with this definition. In other words, a high-value military target justifies a higher number of civilian casualties than a low-value target. By the way, that makes no sense no, um, to, to, to West. It should not make sense to Westerners. <clears throat> During the Second World War, American and British planes uh, bombed cities and killed number of civilians, many of whom have might have been anti-fascist. It didn't matter. The idea was to win. And it requires to win means the death of people on the enemy side, whether they're supportive of the enemy governor or not, government or not. It's, it's immaterial. The idea is to win. So now, Hamas, instead of protecting its civilians, uses them as human shields to make sure there's a high price in civilian deaths for Israel to accomplish any military objective. Now, somehow, the world expects Israel to care more about the lives of Gazans than Hamas does. You think about that. Now, that's the way it is. Any reasonable person can see there's a difference between a terrorist who intentionally targets children and a child who dies in a strike targeting a military objective, particularly if its own government used it as a human shield. And that's what's happening. You know, it's interesting. Again, forgive me for repeating myself. There's nothing like little anti-Semitism to inspire Jewish unity. It's true. Even the most peace-loving Israelis committed to and involved in interfaith work and people who are sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians agree, everybody agrees, that Hamas cannot be allowed to retain the ability to hurt us in any way. Israel was roofed from Gaza in 2005. I was witness to it. I was there as a as the uh, a representative of the uh, radio station, and it was terrible. Israel signed an agreement with the Palestinian Authority that would have given the Palestinians control of their borders, including a seaport of their own in Gaza. But, and that was the Palestinian Authority, but in 2006, Hamas came to power, and in a violent struggle with the Palestinian Authority left over 100 dead, they rejected any deals with Israel. Instead, Hamas 
reaffirmed the desire to expel all the Jews, as they say it, from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, meaning all of Israel. Instead of building a little Singapore on the Mediterranean, Hamas chose a path of violence and oppression. There are innocents in Gaza. Their life is a misery. It's worse. The blame does not lay with Israel. It lies with Hamas. What Israel is doing is not revenge. It is self-defense. That's an important point to keep in mind. It is not revenge. It is defense and trying to create a situation a situation so that what happened should never happen again. Now, it's interesting, just over three weeks ago, when Israel was torn apart over judicial reform, some Israelis were considering emigration. Today, thousands of young people are returning on emergency flights from all over the world, ready to risk their lives for their country. Some 10,000 reservists, many of them opponents of the reform that the, the, the government's trying to pass, they had, re, the, um, they had refused to serve in the army, and today the report for service rate is on 120%, including and particularly in combat units. Now, I do not particularly believe that uh, the, what's happening now, the attack by Hamas, is an existential threat to Israel. The, the, uh, the, 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 the alliance between all Jews is being reforged right now. A political manifestation of this is the admirable and respectful way parts of the opposition in Israel have mobilized to shoulder their share of the national burden. Today, all sectors of Israeli society are partners. And and that, that's fantastic. Unfortunately, this is the situation that brought it about. The uh, It's interesting. Uh, the there's nothing will ever be the same what's the, uh, after what happened earlier this month. There is absolutely no doubt that the Jewish population of Israel, including right-wing and, and, uh, and uh, the religious Jews, center-left and, and the secular Jews, they are much more united than it was ever been since the founding of the state. This is because we are all suffering from the psychological, physical, and economic ramifications of the situation. The, and the truth of the matter is that the government uh, and the, the security forces let us down in terms of the total lack of preparedness for what happened. The Israeli army has called up over 300,000 reservists, and there was a real a great response. The, and as I mentioned before, 
and that includes pilots and other senior officers, reservists, who several months ago had announced that they would desist from coming up for training due to the government's judicial change. Now, the the sense of unity is more as as is now, like it hasn't been since the founding of the state. So, the there's no right and left now. The right and left continue to exist in theory, and the uh, and the fact that there is a right and left is a manifestation of a vibrant democracy. The what we must learn to do is to live in greater harmony with each other and try to refrain from delegitimizing each other. What this war has done to us is to highlight what we have in common as a people and what differentiates us from those monsters who attacked us on October 7th. That, that is what's happened. Our Prime Minister spoke a few days ago, and I want to repeat what he said, but it was really Churchillian. He said, the war within the Strip will be hard and long. We're prepared for it. This is our second war of independence. We will fight for the defense of our homeland. We will fight and we will not retreat. We will fight on the land, sea, and air. We will destroy the enemy above the ground and below the ground. We will fight and we will win. This will be a victory of good over evil, of light over darkness, over life over death. In this war, we stand together, united as never before, confident in the righteousness of our path. This is the mission of our lives. It is also my life mission. That's what the Prime Minister said. He also said, uh, and that I, I already said, and I repeat and say again, after the war, everyone will have to give answers to difficult questions, including me. There was a horrible debacle that will be investigated thoroughly, and no rock will be left unturned. Now my supreme objective is to save the state, that bring our soldiers to complete victory over Hamas and these forces of evil. That's what the Prime Minister said. He said he made a mistake, which is really interesting. The truth of the matter is, since October 7th, the country has lost faith in its leaders, political and military. The country feels let down, and the first step needed to rectify the situation for the leaders, those who are responsible for this debacle, to own up to their own responsibility. Only then can the process of rebuilding trust begin. Now we're in the middle of a ground invasion of Gaza. We're carrying out counter-terror op operations in Samaria, and we're involved in skirmishes with Hezbollah in the north. Actually, we're fighting on three fronts. That's what it amounts to. It needs now to have trust in its leaders, and to have that trust rebuilt very quickly. Taking responsibility means admitting mistakes, hopefully learning from them. A failure to do so indicates a lack of awareness of one's own defects that led to this disaster. 
Taking responsibility for mistakes shows leaders willing to rise above themselves and above their egos. That is what can help unite the country. The failure to do so calls into question leaders' judgment and ultimately chips away at their legitimacy. We really have to do a lot of soul-searching at the governmental level after this calms down, which is going to be months from now. Israel will never be the same, and I think the Jewish world will never be the same. The October 7th is, is a day, as, as Roosevelt said about the December 7th, it's uh, interesting, they both came out on the 7th of a month. It's a day that will live in infamy, and we have to learn from it, improve from it, and be better since, because of what's happened since that date. I'll, I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back again with Jay Shapiro. You know, I suddenly realized something very interesting. Uh, I've been doing this program for quite a number of years, and I always felt that the purpose of this program is to reach out to people all over the world, Jews and non-Jews alike, to give them an idea of what's happening in Israel, particularly the kind of things that are under the radar, the kind of things that you don't really see in the big headlines or in the newspapers every day. Now, because the program is only once a week, I have to choose carefully what the subjects I want to speak about to make sure there are things that the listeners wouldn't generally hear about. Then I suddenly realized in the course of the last two weeks, since the pogrom several weeks ago against the Jews, that I also use this program as a way to express myself and to avoid having to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, because what I have to say on my mind I simply say to the listeners, if I went to a psychiatrist, I have to pay an hourly fee to say what I'm saying here. So I want to thank the listeners, actually, for giving me an opportunity to express myself and get these things off my chest. So this program, I believe, I hope, is helping you to understand what's happening to me and me helping me to get these things off my chest. At any rate, having said that, uh, I want to start off by saying um, there are people who are saying that uh, there should be breaks to allow humanitarian help to get to the people in Gaza. And uh, you have to remember something, that those calling for humanitarian uh, help uh, to the Palestinians don't understand the character of total war. During the Second World War, an untold number of anti-Nazi Germans were killed by Allied bombing. 
and cities uh, in Germany were carpet bombed by the Allied bombers, and Dresden was flattened, and I'm sure there were a lot of anti-Nazis who were killed. That's what happens during the war. It's, it's unfortunate, but true. So I don't think Israel has to give any humanitarian aid to the enemy during a war. After the after total victory, we'll do what the Americans did after Second World War, and we'll provide some assistance for the victims, if you will, or the, the losers in the war. But to talk about giving humanitarian aid now is totally out of the picture. The next subject that I want to touch upon is that uh, in Washington uh, this week, there was a meeting of Jewish leaders and the Biden administration officially vowed to make a plan within two weeks to counter what they say is an alarming rise in anti-Semitism at U.S. colleges and universities since Hamas's attack back in October 7th. And by the way, you know, I watched the news from the United States and there are scenes taking place that I find hard to, to at all to believe. The fact that uh, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish rioters could take over um, major universities and even uh, even downtown New York and the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, and the main uh, railroad centers are taken over by anti anti Jewish and anti uh, people and it's gonna it may come to violence so far so good but uh, who knows what's going to happen uh, so anyhow a lot of Jewish leaders went to the White House and uh, there were, I think there were thirteen Jewish leaders at this meeting and what they really represented was the the uh, political ban of the community from reform to orthodox, from politically progressive to politically conservative, but they sent a unified message asking the administration, it was a call for action against anti-Semitism. And ahead of the meeting, the Biden administration outlined steps it says it's already taken, including uh, the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, they have uh, the imposing law nationwide on the campus and local and Jewish levels. They're supporting uh, campuses around the country, and they're having federal uh, cybersecurity experts read out to reach out to schools. And the Biden administration also expedited uh, an initiative launched just over a week before the Hamas attack. Uh, they want to instruct federal officials to include anti-Semitism and other forms of religious bigotry as protected under uh, the Civil Rights Act. So that initiative, as I understand it, was part of a broader presidential strategy to combat anti-Semitism. So um, across the country, in the United States, on campuses and public spaces, anti-Semitism has found new life, and hopefully this government, the American government, will do something about it. That's really a major problem. Here's another item that's uh, under the headlines on the same subject. Uh, there's a place in New York uh, called uh, 92NY, 
Uh, it's a place in uh, up on the west, Upper West Side, New York, and the uh, it's a very popular place for uh, lectures and uh, and uh, social activities. The uh, what happened was it took less than four days for 92NY to go from having a packed calendar of events and a full team of uh, it's it's gone to a depleted schedule and resignations of the staff. Now this is this is a venerable New York Jewish culture center, and uh, what happened was they scrapped a planned talk uh, a week ago by a Pulitzer Prize winner named Vietnam Nguyen because Nguyen signed an open letter in the London Review of Books that accused Israel of ethnic cleansing, and he condemned the deliberate killing of civilians, and he pushed for an end to the violence and destruction of Palestine. He never specifically denounced Hamas. So this Jewish organization decided to disinvite him because it had and they said they made it had uh, a, a concern for the local community because the local Jewish community has been devastated by the attacks in Israel. So the, um, the, the, they made this postponement only hours before the, this guy was planned to speak. So what happened was, as a result, a whole bunch of other authors pulled out of, the, of their programming. And 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 uh, even members of the staff at the Jewish organization began resigning. So there's been tremendous blowback. The uh, the the this is be this all has come among scathing criticism of Israel's right to self-defense, and that her cultural centers and the arts and entertainment were entertainment world are criticizing Israel for defending itself. There are disputes over the attacks and disputes about Israel's retaliation, and that has spilled into sports, academia, government, business, and law. So uh, the, uh, the, 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 the rules of pluralism and commitment to foster diverse opinions are getting harder to apply. So it's really hard for these Jewish organizations to navigate this moment as cultural organizations. They, they, they want to ensure they're remaining uh, open to all kinds of opinions, but there's certain opinions that you just cannot allow. To, uh, so, the, so many of these... Um, Jewish organizations, very influential ones, they're dealing primarily in the, with the literary nonprofit organizations who who have uh, book book reviews and things that add nature. The uh, the they've canceled uh, a lot of meetings in the aftermath of the loss and during the grieving caused by this great effect of what happened here in in Israel. By the way, along the same uh, same lines, there's a big thing that happens every year called the uh, Frankfurt Book Fair in Germany, and uh, that's a major uh, publishing gathering, and it was held last week, 
and hundreds of authors and literary professionals objected after the organizers announced that owing to the war started by Hamas, they would no longer host a prize ceremony for a particular Palestinian author. This, this Palestinian author was about to get a prize, and they decided that under the present uh, situation, you can't give a prize to a Palestinian author. So the, um, this, in other words, these kind of things are affecting all kind of side issues you would never hear about. The uh, hundreds of authors and publishing industry professionals that uh, they are arguing with each other whether uh, whether you can close out the space for Palestinian voices. So uh, what's happening here in Israel is affecting all levels of society, some of which you could never have imagined are being effective. So here we have the literary, liter, literary world being affected by what's happening here in Israel. And there's another thing uh, I really want to get off my chest. It's something that a lot of people may be speaking about, but I, I feel I have to say something about it. The uh, This, this anti-Israel uh, activity has taken place in major cities in Europe and in the United States and college campuses and also the social media the, it's interesting, among the most strident voices condemning Israel for defending itself and accusing the Jewish state of genocide and blaming us for what's happening and justifying Hamas's atrocities that are uh, their organizations that identify as being Jewish. There's, the, uh, there's an organization called uh, If Not Now, there's a Jewish organization called Jewish Voice for Peace, and they've been front and center in massive anti-Israel demonstration, and individuals wearing skull caps and wrapping themselves in in uh, in talitot have drawn uh, a, a, a public attention, and uh, the the presence of people who can be identified as Jews at these anti-Israel protests, many of times they're openly anti-Semitic chants and calls for the eradication of the state of Israel, would seem to support the mantra that anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism. You can say, well, how could, how could there, there are Jews who identify as anti-Zionists? How can they be anti-Semitic? But now, because of what's happening now, a little deeper reality comes come, emerges. The American Jewish Community's annual survey of American Jews and the U.S. general public shows that both Jews and non-Jews in America view anti-Zionism as simply anti-Semitism. When asked uh, the, whether this statement, Israel has no right to exist, the, uh, which is pretty much the ideological statement of anti-Zionism, they're asked whether Israel is not, uh, has no right to exist is considered an, as anti-Semitic comment. More than 85% of American Jews and non-Jews said that anti-Israel is anti-Semitic. 
because they know hate when they see it. All nations possess the right to to self-determination. As a matter of fact, that's in the UN Charter. The, The very basis of contemporary world order is it that uh, all nations possess the right to self-determination. So the Jews as a nation had that right as well. And the modern movement through realization of that right is, is Zionism. To reject Zionism, that is to deny the Jewish people and only the, and only the Jewish people a right that all other nations have is to discriminate against Jews. And that is to discriminate against Jews is anti-Semitism. It's interesting why there are some Jews as being that define themselves as anti-Zionist. So how do we square the understanding that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic with this reality that some Jews, for whatever reason, identify as anti-Zionist? And the reality is simple. There have always been members of various groups that have rejected or actively opposed their groups themselves, particularly their groups' liberation movements. There were women who opposed women's suffrage. There were African Americans who opposed the abolition of slavery. You can check this out in the history books. But that did not make the movements for women's suffrage for the abolition of slavery any less legitimate or opposition to them any less bigoted. Likewise, the fact that there is a small minority of Jews who identify as anti-Zionist does not make Zionism any less legitimate or opposition to this any less anti-Semitic. There are anti-Semitic Jews. The anti-Zionist Jews are certainly not representative of the Jewish community, and they certainly don't speak in its name. The vast majority of Jews support Israel who regard themselves as Zionists. Years ago, we thought Zionists meant somebody who wanted to go and live in Eretz Israel, in the Holy Land. To be a Zionist is to support those living in the Jewish homeland. And anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism. We, we celebrate, Zionists celebrate Israel's triumphs and they mourn Israel's tragedies. Synagogues in America, community institutions, fly the Israeli flag next to the American flag. The People, uh, particularly in the United States, that I'm familiar with, but it's true of Western Europe also, people are happy. Jewish people are happy. There's an independent country. They're attached to the Jewish state, and they consider the Jewish state as part of of their own Jewish identity. According to the American Jewish Committee surveys, 86% of American Jews be the view the anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanction movement as infected with anti-Semitism. Now you have an anti-Israel demonstrations filling city streets in America, 
and in Western Europe and filling college campuses. They're using token anti-Zionist Jews as fig leaves to legitimize their hate. Now, the, uh, the Jewish community has to speak out against this because anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's the way it is. And the Jewish community knows it, the public knows it, and it's time to really bring this out. So anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, what's happening now in the United States and the university campus is quite frightening. And I'll probably have more to say about that next week because these things are developing. All I can sum it up is saying that we're seeing now things happening in American cities and on American campuses. We're seeing anti-Jewish activity that were unimaginable in my day when I was a student, when I grew up in this stage, and I would say it was unimaginable even five years ago. But the, as I, I've written, universities, particularly the faculties, have been taken over by anti-liberal and anti-American elements, and the American public, not just the Jewish public, but America in general, is going to suffer the consequences of this slow takeover by anti-American elements. Uh, God willing, I have more to say about next week. Things are happening fast and furious. We'll probably have a lot more to say next week. Thanks for listening. Jason Perry signing off.